Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, what's going on? We interrupt this broadcast to bring you the Britflix Fright Fest Preview Podcast 2016. Hello, this is Stuart Wright, your Britflix.com podcast host. This is a little message to let you know that the podcast for Population Zero is a is a preview podcast, but it is also a very clever documentary that is best viewed unspoiled. The first 10 minutes of this podcast discusses what it's about without spoilers. There is then a clear announcement saying we are entering the spoiler zone to which if you want to enjoy this film in its purest form, I would recommend you switch off the podcast then and come back to us when you've watched it. Otherwise, enjoy the podcast. Welcome to another Britflix Fright Fest preview podcast. Today I've got with me a returning guest. He was. Uh, it's. Uh, I was looking at my 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 Skype schedule, and it's um, it's twelve months plus six days since I last spoke to him. And this is uh, Adam Levins. Hello, Adam. Hey, Stuart. How's it going? It's going very well. You're uh, you're busy in the um, in 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 the fun that is a newborn baby. So I'm very pleasantly yes. surprised to have you on board for the podcast. I'm happy to be back. Um, yes, babies. There. Uh, it's like. She's, uh, she's only five days old, so I'm just dealing with it. So if I ramble on or don't make a lot of sense, it's probably because I haven't slept much. <laughs> <laughs> and last, last year you were on talking about your film Estranged, which I think, did that end up going out as one of the Fright Fest Presents films during the year? Yeah, it did. That was great. And, uh, and I just got, like, an email yesterday that we sold, like, in Brazil for On Demand and, and in Japan, too, uh, on the 18th. So it's sort of, you know, with these things, they, they sort of roll out slowly. So we've got... It should be available in the UK pretty much everywhere. It's on Netflix. Everywhere, I mean, like, you know, on iTunes and yeah, yeah, those yeah. sorts of things, you know, on demand. And then, and then I think it's on, it's on Netflix here in the States. So if, you, if you're in the States or Canada, I believe you can just go on Netflix. And I don't know when it, if it might already be in England on Netflix because it just, they all have different schedules or how they do it. Mm. But yeah, 
I've been super happy with sort of the fact that that's since then gotten out into the world and people can see it if they're interested. Yeah. No, no, no. It's a big, it's a big leap because I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of films on at Fryfest and and I see a lot of good ones, and they don't all they don't all make it into the mass market in the end. You know, I'm still one film I'm particular. You know, one film I'm still waiting for for my UK friends to see is. Um, Ben Cressman's film Sunchoke, which it, it's still just on the brink, I think, of getting his UK distribution. Right. It's still not that, happened. That was from last year, right? Yeah, that, that was from last year, like yours. So it's, it is, it is, it is gratifying to hear films like yourself, like yours, did make it into the uh, into the world, as it were, after the festival round. Yeah, it's great, and that's and and it is amazing what Paul and the, everyone at Fright Fest have done with Icon and done that distribution deal because it's. Like it's kind of like a, it's it's like a curation thing. I think we talked about it last time. It's mm. nice because you kind of know what you're getting at Fright Fest. It's a certain genre, a certain type of film, and so when you get a little label like that, it's great for fans to kind of know that this has the seal of approval of Fright Fest. And I don't know, it's kind of cool. Um, well, no, no, I think in in, the, in a world where there's there's infinite choice, sometimes when we when we, when we're being a bit lazy, we want someone to choose for us, and if there's you know, in a, as 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 the the critics' voice has become less important for, yeah. for 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 filtering what's available and what's good and what's bad, then we need to have another signpost. I think, and in this age of instant demand, I think badging stuff, things like Frightfest presents, makes a lot of sense for help people to help people navigate to films that they won't read about in all the broadsheets and hear on Radio Four being reviewed, but yeah. they can trust the Frightfest brand. To choose something that they would like, you know. So, absolutely, and it's and it also like just tough sometimes, you know, like like your friends experiencing to get a to get distribution and a festival like this maybe gives certain films that wouldn't have a chance to to be mm. seen out in the public. It gives them them a chance, you know, and and the good ones too. Hopefully, you know that I mean every obviously everything at Fright Fest is good, but like the ones that possibly don't have distribution that they think this really needs distribution, then they have an option for that, which is cool. Exactly, exactly. So, look, what's what's the new film we're going to be talking about then? Okay, so it's completely different uh, than Estranged, which was a, you know, a sort of a, th- a horror thriller, psychological thriller, I would call it. Um, mm-hmm. Population Zero is is a documentary. Yeah. Uh, that's how we're building it, at least. And, um, and I'm working together with another filmmaker who's more established in the documentary arena, Julian Pinder, mm-hmm. who's made Big Land and Trouble in the Peace, and he's Canadian. Yeah. Uh, um, and right now he's actually working on a Fire Chaser show for Netflix, which is a pretty big thing that's uh, going to be like a, 12, I don't know, a multi-series thing. Yeah. Uh, about shooting that now, so it's all about uh, the fire jumper crews that put out these massive wildfires in California. Okay. Uh, so he's always involved in that sort of that sort of side of things, the the documentary real life stuff. Mm. And so this is a story uh, basically about this loophole in the American Constitution where there's this tiny little strip of land inside Yellowstone National Park where you can get a, get away with murder. Um, and the story centers around these three young men that were killed in April of 2009. Mhm. And right after the killings, uh, the killer, Dwayne, walks into a ranger station and just confesses to the crime. But because of this uh, loophole, uh, he's able to walk free. Wow. And Julian kind of comes to the story later after all this has happened and starts to dig into this situation and what happened and why it's sort of been hushed up and no one's heard about it. And he, uh, he starts to uncover some stuff that 
opens the wound as it was, and the story uh, sort of, like, explodes up again. Mm. And you realize, because he got away with it because they couldn't find a motive or any sort of reason that he would have done it, and he starts to, as he digs into the story, he starts to realize there's a lot more under the surface that didn't come up during the trial. So so how, so you, you would, you would co-direct this with him. How did you get on board with, with uh, working with, with Julian on this? So um, I actually, it came through uh, my manager, um, and and I, he sort of like connected the dots as it was and brought the team together. And uh, I'm actually working Will William Borthwick, who's my longtime collaborator and producer friend, who also did a Strange, was involved in it too. So okay, there's some of the old team there, and, but a lot, but mostly new people because it's a slightly different sort of story, different sort of. How did you How did you find that shift from the sort of um, the sort of cinematic film to the to the documentary format as a, as a storytelling? mechanism um i found it uh to be well i've as i mentioned before i think we talked last time i i do a lot of other work like camera work and production and stuff so i do understand that sort of corporate uh documentary world and i don't mean that documentary corporate's the same but a lot of times the way you shoot is similar of course Uh, yeah so from that point of view it was it was uh this it was not a surprise, mm. but uh, but the challenges on this one were were definitely unique in the sense that we had a lot of uh, it's just a unique project, and I think that's what brought me to it originally is that it's so different. And when you have something that's so unique, there there are definitely signed the films in the past that are similar, but I did I couldn't really put my finger on one film in the past and say they, they did exactly what we tried to do. So you're sort of you're sort of navigating uh, uncharted water, waters in many ways. So that that was challenging. Um, yeah, because sure. I, suppose, I suppose with a script, you, you're following a blueprint, aren't you? Whereas a documentary, you're discovering the path as you walk forward, aren't you? Exactly, exactly. So, so Adam, how was it, what was it like collaborating with Julian as a director? How did that work? How did you keep to, like, a story so there wasn't, a, like, story creep, as it were, into other areas? Yeah, so I was kind of looking for someone to work with that had experience in this arena, and I actually talked to a lot of, uh, a few different, not a lot, but a handful of, documentary filmmakers uh there was sort of because of financing they had to be from canada so so you know we had a short list and we talked to people and for me what i liked about julian was one that we just sort of clicked together and two he was game for doing this film which is just like i said before it's just a very different sort of project Mm -hmm. i guess it fall neatly into a genre category um and um you know that that's what excited me and brought me to it uh, because it's different and I like doing different things. And it's also what excited Julian because he had having had made a lot of traditional documentaries. Uh, this was something that kind of melded his interest in almost more of a drama side of things with documentary filmmaking. Well, look now, uh, Britflix audience, uh, we're going to move into spoiler territory now. So if you don't want Population Zero spoiled, I suggest you stop now and I'll just... Just before we go into the details, should we remind the people when they can see Population Zero, Adam? Yes, yes, please, thanks. So uh, it's, it's going to be on on Friday, the 26th of August, um, and that'll be at 6.25 p.m. on Discovery Screen 2. And there'll be a Q&A after. I'm, I'm going over there to, to watch it <laughs> and to hang out with the other filmmakers and discuss the film, and, and uh, I'm very excited. Cool, brilliant. So... Listener, if, you don't, if you've got a plan to see Population Zero and don't want it spoiled, then I suggest you switch off this podcast and come back to it when you've seen the film.
let's get into the spoiler territory. Okay. So, do you want to give me the the spoiler synopsis, then, of what this is? Right. So, everything in this film is based on this real loophole in the American Constitution. It's an actual loophole. There are lawyers that travel around talking about it, trying to get an amendment on this thing in the Constitution that would allow someone to actually kill someone or multiple people and get away with it. So that's a real thing. and that's you, a, you are not joking. No, we're not joking. That is a real thing in the American Constitution, and it has to do with the way that the Constitution is set out, that you have to be judged by a jury of your peers in the district where this crime is committed. Right. And the problem is, because of the way that national park territory and federal land uh, sort of loop, um, loop over into state land, uh, there's this tiny little district, as they put it, where literally nobody lives. It's an anomaly. It's the only place in America that, that is this district. And so if you were to commit a crime in this area and they cannot prove premeditation or you bought a shovel at a store that's outside or anything like that, if it's a random act of violence and someone is killed, technically, according to the American Constitution and the law in America, you can get away with murder. That's a real thing. It's called the zone of death. You can look it up. There's, uh, there's BBC articles about it online. There's all kinds of information about that. So that's the... Sort of so, so, from, so, so if you and I went for a walk in this yeah. area and we had a bit of a falling out while on that walk yeah, and you battered me as mm-hmm. a result of it and I died and you left me there and the coyotes ate me or whatever, yes, there would be no way you could be tried for that crime because it wasn't premeditated. Right, because, because in this area you can't pull a jury... Uh, and, and because because of the way, like I said, the wording in the Constitution, and you know, they just didn't they didn't obviously predict that this would happen. But there's just no one there to pull a jury. So yes, technically, according to the letter of the law, this is 100 percent legit. And like I said, just just Google Zone of Death uh, Constitution or Yellowstone National Park that combination, and you'll see a wealth of articles, including like I said, that BBC one, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is you know, this is a well known thing. It's it's been out there for a long time. So the way that uh, this whole thing came to be was that Tom Spriggs, who's my manager, uh, uh, he <clears throat> he found this this in, he, one of his uh, friends I think was like working out there and brought this thing to his attention, and um, and then he connected uh, Jeff, the writer, yeah. uh, with this, and out came a script, and um, and then years and years go by as they do, and. Uh, yeah try to find the right people to put this together in the right format. And, you know, during that process, it was decided that, uh, you know, it would be best told as a documentary because it's, because it's something that could happen and it's a real loophole in the mm. American Constitution. That's the best format for this was, was the thinking. Mm. Uh, I came on after the script, you know, a, a few drafts of the script had been done, and obviously we continued to work on the script and changed it immensely. Uh, well, not immensely, but quite quite a bit. Like it was definitely one of those things that evolved all through pre-production and production and editing because we did try to make it in the form of a of a documentary. So you know that in that sense it evolved uh, uh, constantly. But uh, but like I said, it was Tom and Jeff that were on this first working, and then uh, Will and myself came in later, and and other producers. There were quite a few producers on this project. There were. Mm. I think six or something like that, but um, but yeah, it's uh, it, that's that's kind of that's sort of the best way I could say how it came together. Well, that makes that, that, that makes perfect sense. So, from a from a creative point of view, then, how, when when you're making a um, 
faux documentary, as it were. Uh, yeah. So for it to look like a, so essentially you're making the edited film, aren't you? Whereas a documentary would go away and get hundreds of hours of footage and then painfully, painstakingly go through that and create a narrative. You decided <laughs> what what elements of a documentary you could do to tell this wonderful story of somebody getting away with murder in this loop through this loophole. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so it, it, just like any script, uh, you know, it had, had dialogue there, it had description, it had scene titles, it was, it was just a regular script, you know. Um, it, you know, it would be in, interior, interview, you know, you're sitting there with detective so-and-so, and here's what he says. But it's not quite as simple as that, because you, I came in and I learned very quickly that when you're working um, with actors and you're saying, say these lines, it, it doesn't quite feel 100% real sometimes. Even the best actors, it's very difficult. So we actually sort of went a few steps back during the process and we would, uh, Jeff and I would sort of work on backstory for characters and then we would basically write out interview questions just like you would normally have. And usually I would start the interviews with Julian sitting there asking these questions that were, that were not, so it wasn't just scripted lines. And then... At some, these actors would know their lines, and so they would wait for the right moment and then throw in the scripted line, and then at the end, maybe I'd run those scripted lines a few times more. But it's funny how much the editing process was just like cutting a real documentary because you end up with a lot of the best stuff is in them ad-libbing to these questions that he's giving because they need backstory, and the gold, the gold is often in there and not in the scripted lines. <laughs> So it's like, it's like you solved the problem to create a problem and solved it in a way that a normal documentary is made. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, and the actors love that too. I mean, it, we had a lot of different actors, and the one crazy thing about this project, besides you know, the, the people I worked with every day, like Julian, was mm -hmm. that I would probably meet you know, two or three actors in the morning. I would shoot them out that day, and I would never see them again because we have so many different people that have little interview parts or little moments in the film. Mm. Um, and that's strange. You have to, like, build a, a trust very, very quickly, you know, because I hadn't seen them since casting. Uh, and they would just have their one or two days on set, and then, they, you know, they were off. So, yeah. Okay, okay. So, so the, the other thing then, from a not, again, with a, normal, with a normal fictional film where you've got, you know, the freedom to do what you want to, to um, establish your cinematic vision... Yeah. How do you go about creating a cinematic vision where the parameters are this has to look like a documentary as opposed to that'll be an interesting shot or would it be interesting if we told this kind of sequence this way? You know, how did you how did you try to make it interesting for yourself or was the challenge of trying to recreate a documentary challenging enough in itself? Yeah, that was interesting. I actually, there was a lot of debate and back and forth about that, like how we wanted to frame it. And I was very, I was pretty opposed straight off to the idea of just shaky cam city where it's just like, you know, it looks real because it's crappy. Yeah. I, we moved past that a little bit, especially like my, the documentaries that I love are things like The Imposter or Man on Wire or like, you know, things that are po like polished. It, just because it's a documentary doesn't mean it has to be, you know, bad craftsmanship. You yeah, still yeah, want yeah. And if you watch any HBO doc, you know, or like big BBC documentaries, they're incredibly well produced and well lit, and and you know, there's there's top teams working on those things. And so I made a decision early on not to go down that road of like I'm just going to make this like reality, you know, uh, found footage type uh, type thing. 
Mm. And my, my thinking on that was like, you know, yes, it might make it seem more staged, but I also think people are aware that every time you see that found shaky footage, it, their suspicions go up now because it's been done to death. Um, and so that's the, that's the sort of the route I took. I, I chose the locations carefully that I liked. I wanted things to look good. We lit very well for the interviews. We, we took our time with, with, uh, with shooting and, and, you know, it worked well because it sort of, the, the story sort of starts off very composed and everything's going like, it's all beautiful and blah, blah, blah. And then as, as this, the, the shit hits the fan, as it were later in the story, mm-hmm. things start to get more frantic and the camera work does kind of take that frantic turn as it gets more thriller-esque and like, and like, they feel like they're being hunted and like, and that, and that works. That, that sort of organicity works in my opinion. Okay. So, so creatively there's that idea of we, 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 we set the tone of this controlled, documentary being made and then we lose that control as the characters in the documentary begin to get into the chaos of what transpires that was that was the plan and and i and i think that worked well for me and audiences it seems to it's a subtle thing it's not like a it's not like we flip a switch and all of a sudden it's like that it sort of creeps up on you of course but uh but that was that was my goal yeah so uh, but like I said, there was a lot of back and forth on that with the producers and other people involved being like, you, you know, you need to, you need to go more rough with the camera work. And I was like, no, no, no. I think, you know, for me, this is more me. Like if you've seen my other stuff, I come from a cinematography background and I just don't feel like that makes sense for me. Like filmmakers don't go out on purpose and shake the camera around. <laughs> no, no. And I think, I think you're right. I think it's sort of a, it's, it's a kind of lazy notion, and I, and I, I, I admit guilt here in my own, my own thinking asking the question, because, because um, you know, even the most basic sort of documentary filmmaking is often people going to find someone to interview, and they'll put the camera on a tripod, at the very least, you know, and yeah. they'll fix the frame, and then they'll film the interview, and that'll be part of the footage. It isn't yeah. always about chasing tornadoes through a field. Right. When you make yes. a documentary, and, and 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 before we record, before we record this, and we were deciding how to do this, um, this idea of the 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 um, the spoiler version of the of the talking about it, because there is only that way to talk about it. Um, right. I, I remember that being a, a, a distinct part of uh, the film Conspiracy, which played at Fright Fest, I think, two years ago. Right. Uh, where where it's them making a documentary, so it's very very studied approach so you're seeing them film interviews and but film each other doing it documenting each other and then when they get into the the conspiracy that they're investigating it's just footage from a digital camera on a typing so right. that's it so suddenly it becomes very very personal and very very simplistic so it's not about the vistas it's more about the mood and the tone and that change and that's again like you described it it, it it was it was affected because it became a change in the situation as well as a change in what you were how you saw it as well so you it, it played it went in parallel as opposed to opposed to yeah i mean you have to you have to sort of when you're talking mood and style and those sorts of things uh i think the script has to dictate that and to me that's how the script played it played very conservative traditional in the beginning like it like you're an opening that you know here's a documentary filmmaker that's going in to investigate this thing that's an anomaly and he's interested but it's you know that's what he does he's a documentary filmmaker he starts to unravel the story dig deeper into the story and then the story bites back right he, he gets mm. to the story where all of a sudden he he finds himself in the middle of it 
and in, and, in, and in danger, you know? And so at that point, it naturally made sense for it to become more chaotic, and that's what that's the, the route I follow. So just let, let's just rewind a second in the process. There's one question I want to ask you about, because you, you mentioned about there being sort of challenges getting the script right from the point, you know, it had been kicking around a bit, and then when you came on board, there was still work to do. So at that point when you came on board working with the screenwriter, what for you was the biggest storytelling challenge to fix in terms of what was on the page? Um, well, first of all, I think the script was, was great, and that's, that's pretty much standard procedure. Like, I've never worked... I mean, it's not like I've directed that many films, but the two that I have and other films that I've worked on that have not been made yet, I, I never... You never come on board, and it's like, oh, this is perfect, let's shoot. Because you have to, you have to tailor... I'm not... I am trying to write some stuff, but I'm not a writer, so I generally take on other people's projects or mm. things that are brought to me by producers and, and that sort of thing. Mm. And you have to get that into a place where it's my story as much or more so than it is the screenwriter's story. Because I'm the person that's got to take it uh, you know, from you know, pre-production to shooting to living with it in the edit for possibly up to a year. You know, it's, and, and I have to find my motivation for telling it and, like, and like reinvent the story if it usually it already has that appeal, but you you latch onto those things that interest you and then you amplify them. Of course. Uh, and so and also just other you know, just with the process of doing multiple drafts, you know, hopefully you're moving towards improving it. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, like things that changed majorly was it wasn't a lot of the the beginning and stuff. It was more towards the middle where we tried to kind of up the tension and make it more exciting in that way. And then the end was a total rewrite as well. But uh, uh, we shot both versions of the ending um, just because, totally, why not? You're there. You might as well uh, have a couple options later when you're editing. And, but we did go with the rewritten one. Yeah. Which I was mean, a very, like a very, the ending is very different. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, hopefully, God, if you, if you screenwriter, if you listen to this, I mean, I'm, I'm a screenwriter myself. And I'm not, I'm certainly asking that question thinking you came on board and, and waved your magic wand on all the story problems. I was just thinking more about the conversations you and the, you and the screenwriter had and, where where the where the knots were and and sort of how how you went about resolving them. So like you say that tra- and it's interesting the way you described it. There is that kind of transition stroke transference from what is an appealing project to something that becomes something you can then shoot. Yes, and it's a difficult process for for the writers too. Like mm. like I consider Jeff my friend. Like I consider Simon my friend that wrote Estranged. Like. But I, I would be lying, and I think any director would be lying if, if, if you were to say that was a totally smooth process, like, you know, we were back <laughs> the whole time. Because you're, I'm taking your baby, I'm taking it, like you, Stuart, your screenwriter, I'm taking your baby, and I'm, in your mind, I'm hopefully doing a good job, but there are days where you're like, he is mangling my baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, because that's something you've lived with for so long, it, it's... You know, it's, I, I do think that screenwriters are the un, unsung heroes because that's where the gems of stories come from. They sit there and write, and that's why writer-directors often do such good work. But, uh, you know, you're taking their, their baby and you're, you're, you're messing with it. So I, I'm always aware of that, and sometimes you have, to, you have to sort of just be tough and be like, well, this is what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But, Jen, you know, 90% of the time or 95% of the time you're getting on. Like, I, I always have gotten on with the writers, but... I know deep down that it's tough to watch sometimes <laughs> for them, you know. No, 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 it must be because, I mean, because you, 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 you're coming back with, I'm guessing you're coming back with notes. You're not taking it away and then fixing it. You're, you're asking them to do something or you're... Yes, except when you're in production sometimes. You're just sort of on, on set, and especially with something like this, uh, 
you're you're just ad libbing. You know, like I said, we were we were there was the scripted stuff that they were supposed to say, but generally speaking, we. And Jeff was there with me doing this, so this was nothing that he wasn't totally in on. He was like, "This is yeah, this is awesome. This is what we'll do." So we wrote the backstories on each character, which was a lot of work for him. Like he wrote backstories for every character, and there's a ton of characters in this. And then from that backstory, we were like, "What would what would a documentarian ask these people?" Mm. And then came up with those questions, and they weren't necessarily like, "Oh, we want to get this soundbite that's in the script." It was literally like, "This would be an interesting point." And so we gave them the backstories often on the day when they turned up. Which just goes to show how great these some of these uh, actors were. They got these backstories and they were able to like get into that headspace. Julian was able to sit down. I actually stayed out of the room watching a monitor generally, so I wasn't interfering. And I would go and talk, I would actually generally not until the end go and speak directly to the actors. I would go and talk to Julian and let him fill that role as the filmmaker. Okay, okay. So you were kind of like in the in the in the kind of artifice of creating the documentary. You were allowing that organic process to kind of happen and yes. then and then sort of come like wizard of oz come from behind the curtain and go okay take two let's uh, let's try it with this or, or well whatever. during uh, during the interviews i tried to like not even like even if i was like oh i just made a note like oh that that question interesting i might ask him to redo that and change this and then i wouldn't really like during the interview which let's say that's a 30 minute process or something mm. i would just let julian do his thing even if i had a note or something it would have to be a crazy, drastic reason for me to stop it because it's it takes people. You're you're creating a an environment that feels like a real documentarian sitting in their living room, which obviously is not their living room. It's some location we're at, and they're in their costumes. We had, I mean, it, we had like makeup, costume, hair, like it was a regular production from that point of view. But you're trying to create this uh, artifice, this sort of bubble where in this bubble, it's just Julian. A documentarian coming to visit them in their home to talk about their son's murder. Wow. Yeah. I get you, I get you, yeah. So it's almost, it's, it's like method documentarian. <laughs> method documentarian. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it was super, and it was super amazing and fun. Yeah. And we had some great, great, uh, actors in, in this thing, you know, um, uh, and, uh, you know, Dwayne was in Spotlight, you know, the, the Oscar winning film and, and, you know, we worked with some high caliber people and they, and, they love this sort of thing, actors. Like, you know, where you can do something that's not just the everyday scripted lines. So, mm. so it was a lot of fun. And I, I think I mentioned with The Strange, like, I, I came from more of a camera background. Okay. Uh, and so I, I feel like on this film, I learned so much about working with actors and, and pared down the dramatic, fancy camera work because that didn't suit this thing. And so it was a very much a learning process for me. Okay, so what? So you were you were like having it, it, where where if you were doing a kind of shoot of a documentary, you'd use sort of higher end sort of kit, whereas you you toned it down to give the feel of a real documentary. Yeah, we didn't go crazy. We didn't shoot on Reds, like we didn't, or like Alexas. We, you know, we we were like, what would they probably be using? And so, you know, they might have been using a C three hundred or yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or something like that. We, I think, we went with C one hundreds and like uh, like Ninja recorders, Atomos recorders. Uh, like it was very much what they would, what a documentarian would use. Um, I think maybe we paid a little more attention to lighting uh, for interview scenes, but other than that, we were just outdoors, natural light, um, handheld some tripod. It was, I mean, basically just trying to create an authentic documentary was my goal without, like I said, over-egging it or mm. like shaky cam on one hand or going, you, you, it's a balance. Like I want my, from day one, my goal was I want people to sit down 
and have that experience that this is real. Yeah, so, so, so I was going to say... nightmare because I feel like I'm just giving it all away. So I hope people are not listening to this without having seen it, at least if they're interested in seeing it. I'm fascinated there with your your method um, directing, as it were, to allow the the organic nature of a documentary thing work, i.e., putting Julian in the role from the actor's point of view as the filmmaker, and you being someone who is a distant relative to that in the in the kind of making of. How did you go? How did that work? How did that work from casting to film? So presumably you were involved with casting these people before before that all happened. Yeah. So. Uh... And they, they don't think it was odd that you that you were that distant. As well, no, girl. because I mean they knew what was going on. I mean, okay. I was director Julian was brought on. He uh, he's written down as co-director just because that helps sell the story the way we want it to be sold. Of course, but, of course. I saw I saw five or six different documentarians to cast in the role of the documentary filmmaker in the story. Yeah, Julian was good because one he was excited about it, which was important, and two I felt like he had that flair and ability to act. I mean, it's crazy what he pulled off being a non-actor. Yeah. I mean, he came in hot. And I mean, like, you know, just a few days until shooting and we sat down and we did some interviews and I, we worked with Julian and, but he's already, he was already very natural on screen. So it was more of me just saying like, do less, do less, just be yourself. <laughs> do less. And by the time we got to the scenes where it was more him being in the story and the camera turning on the filmmakers, you know, he was ready, uh, to do that, and he did a great job. And I mean, he's just kind of a natural. That was what what interested me in him more than some of the other documentarians was his ability to to act. Essentially, like he had that natural thing that some actors have. He's it's not what he does day to day, but I think he's pretty damn good at it. When I watched the conspiracy the first time round, I just got the details a bit like when I've been speaking to you and other filmmakers. You know, I got the, I got the link to watch it and everything. Before I was yeah. lucky enough to watch it before Fright Fest, and I didn't, I didn't, I read, I read like the little paragraph on IMDb just to make sure I knew what type of film I was about to watch, and then yeah. I sat down and watched it. Yeah, and by the end of it, I was kind of like, "What the hell? What yeah. the hell?" And I Google, I googled a few things, and I'm like, and then finally I realised it's a fucking film. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it, ain't, it ain't real. So, so I'm, a question I've asked everybody I've spoke to you thus far. Is yeah. what are you? I mean, you've said you're coming over. What are you most excited to experience with the uh, with the audience uh, yes. while watching the film? Is it, and because we're in the spoiler bit now, is it, for example, at the end of the movie, are we fully aware this is a movie, or is there kind of is there a, is there that kind of pause for thought about what have I just watched? Um, so there's a couple things that I. First, I'll start by saying, like, it's not my intention ever to trick someone. I don't think that that's fun. Uh, you know, I don't... I think what what is fun, though, is to suspend disbelief for a little bit. Because course, we all yeah. do that when we sit down and watch a film. And all we're doing here is we're just suspending disbelief in a different way. We're, we're suspending disbelief for the audience to think, I'm watching a documentary. Mm -hmm. And that opens up a lot of fun possibilities for filmmakers and storytellers. Because if you think you're watching a documentary and you see something just bonkers... Yeah. Uh, uh, that's a crazy ride that we're taking you on. And so my goal is just to entertain, not to preach or do anything like that. And 
And that was what excited me about this. It was that idea of or Orson Welles' War, War of the Worlds, radio play, people thinking that aliens landing. That's That might be scary for some people, mm -hmm. but it's also really kind of fun in a way, an experience you're not going to get just watching something, a regular film or whatever. Mm. And so that's what I latched onto, and I wanted to do something different because why just... If you're going to do something like this, why just make a run-of-the-mill documentary? You want to do something that where the stakes are higher and the tension is higher because you can do that, you know? Yeah. As long as you go along for the ride, that's fun. I think by the end, it's hope. My hope is that it's so extreme where we go that that you most people, not everyone clearly, because I've been to festivals and we're at Newport, and even during the Q and A when Julian was up there being okay, I'm going to bring the actual director on, and I came up there, I still had questions like, yeah, but those dead boys, like you know, <laughs> I was like, no, 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 they're all actors. <laughs> uh, and, and explained that people just were still in, uh, caught up in it, which was amazing. Um, but like I said, not, my intention was not to trick ever. It's just to entertain and take people on a different experience than your everyday. I think I, the, other, the other thing I'll just say quickly is yeah. for me, and this goes back to like why I came on the project originally, is I feel like we live in a society where it's very, very difficult to say, this is a documentary, this is reality TV, this is not. I worked on reality TV shows. Yeah. Those things are, because I'm a cameraman as well, if you believe that that stuff is real, <laughs> you're in for like a rude awakening. And I, and I wanted to explore and open that debate and start that conversation. And that's a lot of what we talked about at q and is, is like, what is real, like, really? In the States recently, uh, there's been a trend to, like, activism documentary filmmaking where pe they're actually changing the outcomes of court cases and the outcomes of, like, people's lives. Like, the Jenks, for example, where the filmmakers literally withheld evidence and was, like, kind of getting so involved in the story that they were almost, like, acting like police themselves. Um, and that's kind of more what interested me was this idea that I'm seeing this going on in the world now around me and I'm seeing these uh, filmmakers almost become like vigilante filmmakers and that's all good and well as long as that filmmaker is on the right side of the story mm -hmm. but, but we have to understand that we're filmmakers, we're not judges jury and executioner all in one and, um, and that's kind of the theme that I was like latching onto okay. uh, yeah, was this idea of like have you seen the Jinx? Like, no, I was going to say, because I've seen Making of a Murderer, which obviously, uh, is, is, I guess, is the opposite, because they've... They, they, I didn't realise there was that sort of side of the Jinx, which is the, um, the, the playing, playing Law and Order as well as documenting Law and Order, which seems a bit surreal and absurd. Um, well, I think what caught him was in that interview at the end when he goes into the bathroom and he's peeing and his mic's on, right? And he says, yeah, I killed him, I killed them all, or whatever, right? Or whatever his line is. And so, you know, then they had that information and they decided to sit on it for uh, um, a certain amount of time, I believe was what happened. And then, uh, you know, I think that it was in their best interest to have this happen on their show. And so they, they sat on that, essentially, which is like, you know, whatever. But, you know, but that, that, that was this... I don't know, like, I think uh, for for younger people today, I don't know how much they believe that, like, you know, the Kardashian shows are real or how much they believe that, you know, any of these reality shows are real. And, and that's what interested me a lot with this was to sort of, like, make this film, one, because, like I said, entertainment and all that sort of thing, but two, to, like, open up this debate a little bit um, and explore those themes that were interesting to me. Because at the end of the day, you just do something, a film that interest you because of what's going on around you and I wrote my for example my dissertation 
when I was at uni in England, mm. uh, my dissertation was on the origins of reality TV. So, so oh, really? this seed, yeah. So this seed has been like planted in me for a long time, and I've always been looking for the right project to explore this sort of uh, truth versus not truth in filmmaking, and especially in documentary and reality, which I actually think. Reality is just an evolution of documentary. Like reality TV is just a more of a, a candid version of a documentary. But in many ways, and the irony is that reality is the candid version of a documentary, which a documentary is more framed, but often the case is that the documentary being more framed is more honest than reality TV. <laughs> well, no, there's, there's a film showing this year at, uh, at Fright Fest alongside yours called, I don't know if you've seen it, Man Underground. Okay. No, not yet. I'm... Hopefully I'll get to see someone I'm over there. Um, and that's, that's, that just has the, in the middle of the, it's about a conspiracy theorist who right. he's having trouble, you know, he's getting like 10 people turning up to his live gigs and his YouTube audience is stuck at about 300. And yeah. his friend says, why don't you fictionalize the message you're trying to give across? So it's like, yeah. it's that shift away from stop trying to tell people exactly what is happening and yeah. try and weave that message into something that is dramatic. So, in a way, it's a film that, that taps into some of the stuff you're talking about, in a way. Uh, yeah, and it's, like I said, you, you know, that, that interest in that filmmaker, and so, you know, my next film's not going to be probably about this, but for me, the, the things that interest me in terms of themes was this idea of, like, how far can a documentarian get involved in a story until they're no longer documenting it and they're just the story? Yeah, well, that, that, I mean, the conspiracy does that really well. So let's remind people then when they can see Population Zero. Yeah, so that's, uh, I think it's at 6.25 p.m. Uh, August 26th on Discovery Screen 2. Cool. Well, look, thank you very much for coming on to talk about it. Hopefully we don't spoil it for anyone by accident. Absolutely. <laughs> thank well, you, Stuart. I, uh, thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes. Hey. What's going on? If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we release it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to stream from on the website. This has been a Gritflix Fright Fest Preview Podcast 2016. If you are listening to this podcast through iTunes and you've got five minutes to spare and you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave me a review and a comment. It will really help to publicise and promote the Britflix.com podcast and get more people to hear what you enjoy. Thank you. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.